God is good. Amen. Well, we still got one more surprise for you this morning. Turn to the person beside you and say, all for free. All for free. Yeah, all for free. Uh, we had a bunch of men last weekend uh, went away to a uh, men's retreat. Or was it two weekends ago? It was two weekends ago, right? Because it was when I was on my way down to Haiti, so it was two weekends ago. And, uh, you know, a bunch of the guys went uh, to the Band of Brothers retreat and uh, had a great time. And so uh, some of them are shy, but we convinced Orion to, uh, uh, with a little bit of arm twisting to share this morning. So would you just welcome Ryan Conroy as he comes and shares about the, what happened at the men's retreat. All right. We on? Awesome. Hi, everybody. Hey. All right. So uh, uh, Kevin asked me to talk about uh, the Band of Brothers uh, boot camp. We don't call it a retreat, by the way. It's not a retreat because we're not pulling away from anything. We are pressing forward. So we call it a boot camp. Um, it, happened, it did happen a few weeks ago. It was uh, Mark Henshaw, Ryan Jensen, Mitch Smith, and myself. Um, we went up to uh, the Band of Brothers boot camp at Camp Iowa, just a little bit north of Kingston. Um, Mark had invited me to this thing uh, a couple months ago, and quite honestly, I was a little bit hesitant about it. Um, I didn't think I needed to go to some kind of men's retreat. I thought I had a pretty good idea, a pretty good grip on this whole masculinity thing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I turn wrenches for a living. I work with my hands. I go to the gym. I've got the world's most amazing wife who's at work right now. She's not here with me today, but um, I also have two beautiful daughters who mean the world to me. So how much more could I really need to learn about masculinity? And it's awfully funny how blind even a little bit of pride can make a man. <laughs> nevertheless, I decided it was at least a good weekend to go out with a good group of guys. So we all piled into Mitch's truck. Um, after, we actually met up with Pastor Kevin at uh, Tim Hortons. He prayed for us. Right next to us was a biker having a smoke and a coffee. And he looked at us a little bit funny, I think, but that's all right. Um, <laughs> and we hit the road, and on the drive up, Mark had asked us all what we were hoping to get from the weekend. Um, personally, I deal with some anger issues. Um, I'm half Irish, so I do have a tendency to bottle some things up, and there's always that one little thing that gets added to the pile, and whoever adds that one little thing to the pile usually gets unloaded on. Um, it's... It's one of my many flaws. It's something I deal with pretty regularly, but um, uh, by God's grace, I'm working through it, and I'm getting over it, and that's good. So my honest response, uh, honest response to that uh, question was, I was just kind of hoping that this weekend I would get uh, some kind of new coping mechanism to deal with these anger issues, my Irish temper, and uh, what I got was a whole lot more. Um, we got to the camp. We checked in. We even got a free T-shirt, a free water bottle. Um, even a little replica dog tag, and it says, Band of Brothers Boot Camp, Mark 317, Ottawa of 2017. Um, to be honest, when I got it, I thought it was a little bit hokey. I'm like, well, this is a men's retreat. Like, come on, it's not, we're not really soldiers. But again, proved wrong very quickly once getting there. So we, uh, we got there, and the whole boot camp is based around a video series by a guy named John Eldridge. Has anybody read the book Wild at Heart? Guys, okay, cool. It, honestly, wives, get your husbands this book for Christmas. It's an amazing book. John Eldridge has got some amazing insight on what it means to be masculine, biblically masculine. Uh, to, quote him, the, uh, to quote him and what the whole uh, boot camp is about, it's about how deep in a man's heart he longs for a battle to fight, an adventure to live, and a beauty to rescue. 
it's really interesting because if you look at uh, historically and culturally, a lot of the stories that we live and or that we watch and movies that are made, they're all sort of based around that same concept. And it's because it resonates so deeply in a man. And uh, the, the problem is, is that for most of us, if not all of us, we do have some things that we need to deal with first before we can do that. Uh, we have some things that we need to drop off at the foot of the cross. After these videos, we had several different leaders come up, and they gave bits of their testimony. Um, they actually gave a lot of their testimony of, um, about battles that they had fought and won. These guys are telling stories about battles that they are in the midst of, and even some that they had lost. These are some strong stories from some very strong and very brave men who lay it all out, sharing their war stories with a group of men that they had never even met before. Through tears, they gave it all, giving way to the amazing victories that they had in Jesus. By Saturday afternoon, uh, Saturday afternoon was actually a little bit interesting because they had activities planned for us. And me and Mark and uh, Mitch and Ryan all went skeet shooting, which was really cool. And I want to point out the fact that Ryan, where is he? Where's Ryan? Ryan was the only one to shoot six for six. And Mitch was very quick to point out it's because he has four daughters. So he's going to need aim that good. It's very true. He nailed it. He was awesome. It was really cool. <laughs> That's it, right? So after that, though, uh, there was more series and more talks and everything, and it, it wrecked me. Here I was thinking that I had it all figured out not more than two days previous to that, and I wasn't even close. I was crushed when I realized that there were things that I had never left at the foot of the cross. Sure, I may have thought I did, or I may have just assumed it was taken care of when I said yes to Jesus. But I never confessed those things that darkened who I am. Wounds from when I was just a kid that have haunted me and kept me living in a lie. Things that have kept me living like a lost little boy and not like the man that God had called me to be. James 5.16, Kevin actually had it posted up there for a corporate prayer. I thought that was pretty cool. It says, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. On that Saturday evening, there was a prayer room set up about 100 yards away from the auditorium where the, leader, or where the leaders of the boot camp would pray for you and with you if you wanted that was without a doubt the hardest 100-yard dash I had ever made in my life. I was about to expose a wound that had haunted me for my entire life. And that wound is deep, it's old, and I was about to put it before God with the help of two guys who I had met exactly once. This was a wound that not even my wife knows about. It took everything in me to pray through the tears with these awesome men of God. And they asked me to really listen to the Holy Spirit at the end. They asked me, what was he telling me? My strongest life verse is Joshua 1.9. And I think it's the third time in the first chapter of Joshua where God says, I have commanded you, be strong and courageous. I always assumed it was God calling me out in faith to take those steps and to be courageous to be the man that he wants me to be, to be strong and courageous. What I heard the Holy Spirit tell me that night in prayer with these two complete strangers, I think one of them was an electrician and the other one was like a realtor. <laughs> the, 
The Holy Spirit said, my son, you are strong and courageous. And this reinforced so many things that I wanted to believe about God, about what he actually thinks of me, but what I was too bound by old wounds to believe. But what is so beautiful is that when you expose a wound, Jesus will heal it. And when it's healed, all that's left behind is a battle scar, a testimony. We are in a spiritual battle. We're born into it. But what I realized is you only ever really lose a battle when you hide the wounds from the one who heals. <laughs> it took me a while to sort of come to that conclusion because I know that my anger issues, what I was hoping for was that quick fix, that coping mechanism. But God doesn't put a Band-Aid over a bullet hole. That's not what he does. He removes the bullet entirely. And he leaves you healed. He doesn't leave the Band-Aid on. I would like to encourage, if I could, that there are men in this room who have wounds, who have things that they're dealing with, things that they have never even left at the foot of the cross, things that they keep all to themselves. In Proverbs 24 5 and 6, it says, A wise man is full of strength, and a man of knowledge enhances his might. For by wise guidance, guidance you can wage war, and in an abundance of counselors there is victory. This room is full of an abundance of counselors. We have many of them sitting up front with us today. Many men of God are probably sitting right beside you today. And I would ask and encourage that you join us for this summer's boot camp, or this spring's boot camp that's coming up. We're going to have dates on that later on. It's an amazing time. It really is. It's full of healing. It's full of revelation. It's full of testimony. It's full of so many good things, including really good food. Really good food. Saturday night, all you can eat prime rib. Seriously, it's like that thick. It's really good. It's really good. See? There. Yeah. But it's amazing. I mean, the food, honestly, is secondary to what you will experience and what goes on at these boot camps. It is not a retreat by any stretch of the imagination. Ask any wife of a man who's gone to this boot camp, and they'll tell you he's come back different, that he's come back healed, that he's come back more loving, more caring, more serving to his family. It is beyond incredible. So I encourage wives, send your husbands. Seriously, it's just a really good time. It's, it's great. It's amazing. Men, just go. We're going to have dates on it a little bit later on. But I leave you encouraged, and I leave you with this. If there is a wound that you need healed, this service, these men up here, myself, anybody would be happy to pray with you. Put it before God. Put it at the foot of the cross. That is exactly where it was meant to be left. Thank you, everybody. Amen. 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 Hallelujah. Amen. Good job. Thank, thank you, Lord. Can you, just, can you just pray for grace over the men of our house to just, that they would be able to take that step and that they would have, find that safe place? But um, anyway, can you pray into that, please? Um, Father, we, we thank you for the men in this church today, that they are strong and courageous. And we want them to know that even though there is a wound and that there, every man does have that deep wound, that there is healing for it, that no wound too deep, no wound too old, no wound too devastating. And God, there is healing for those wounds, for those men. Because with that healing, 
there is such a tremendous strength in these men that you raise up a generation of men who take care of their homes, who take care of their wives, who take care of their children, Father. We just thank you for that. We thank you for the strength that they bring to this church. We thank you for the grace that they need to come forward, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Yeah. Can you just lift your hands towards Ryan right now? Let's just pray over him and, and over all the men. Father God, we thank you for, for what you're doing in Ryan's life, Lord God. We plead the blood of Jesus Christ over him and his family. That, Father God, as he shared, Lord God, he would not be vulnerable. But, Father God, he would be protected by your blood. And, by, and we ask for your angels to minister to, through, and for him this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Bless you, bro. Hallelujah. Amen. Can we have uh, Pastor Sherry come up as well? And Tom and, and Jolie and Wayne and Cheryl and Sheldon and Cindy and Tammy. And yes, we are big in sending. We believe in, oh, and Katrina, there you are. Thank you. You got to know who you are. Hallelujah. We just want to lay hands on our pastors as we, and we're going to send them on purpose with a purpose into Nicaragua. And, and I just decree and declare that, uh, Sherry, you're going to step into a new level of the prophetic and, a, and new areas of ministry. And we're excited for what you're about to do. And also, Kevin, and um, don't, don't miss me around the buffets too much, okay? I, I won't. Talk. <laughs> <laughs> so just lift, lift your hands and as a point of faith towards Father. We thank you for our pastors, Lord God. We thank you for the apostle and prophet of the house, Lord God. We thank you for Kevin and Sherry, Lord God. And we, we, as we lay hands on them, we send them, Lord God, into Nicaragua as a house, Lord God. We thank you that they're going, Lord God, with an anointing, foreheads like flint, Lord God, and able to pierce through darkness and bring hope, Lord God. We thank you for a spirit of sonship. We thank you, Lord God, for ministry to especially Carlos and Louisa, Lord God, as they, as they go down there, Lord God. Give them the grace they, they need. I decree and declare the spirit of wisdom, knowledge, understanding, counsel, might, and the fear of the Lord be upon them, that they would do it an effectual ministry like never before. And we look forward, Lord God, to the wonderful reports and testimonies that are going to come forth because of this encounter in Nicaragua, we pray in in Jesus' name, amen. So don't forget, be praying for them as, they are, as they're gone. They leave this Saturday. When will you be back? Uh, we will be back on Tuesday the 21st. Okay. So we're so gone 10 days. Keep praying for them. So, uh, yeah, we uh, missed two Sundays. So we'll turn the house over to Barry and Mark while we're away. And, and uh, hopefully they don't tear the place apart while we're gone. Uh, but I have no guarantees, I know. <laughs> Well, if I could just have your attention for the next 30 minutes, I, uh, I really would appreciate that. Um, I wanna, people were asking me about Haiti, and uh, I, so I wanted to just show you a little bit more. But there is one important thing I want to show you and uh, that I don't want to miss this morning. You guys remember their, their, their building was destroyed by the earthquake. This is the, a picture of the, the new facility they've had for the last number of years. It's a two-story facility in there, cafeteria, the whole ball of wax, probably one of the nicest schools in all of Haiti, and uh, Bennett's ministry is operating this about 45 minutes in, uh, north of Port-au-Prince in a place called Vignay. Fantastic uh, school. And you might be saying, where in the world did you take that? You have a drone? Like, how are you taking that picture? That's because no sooner did he finish that project than he started this one. And I'm up on the top floor of this five-story building, and this is just about completed. 
And uh, this building is going to have uh, all of, uh, you know, it'll have a few classrooms in it, but most of it's going to be computer labs, uh, science labs, all kinds of stuff like that. Uh, he has a vision to raise up the, the most well-educated and prepared students in the entire country of Haiti. Because as I shared last week, Bennett is thoroughly convinced that there's a better way, and he believes that that better way is through education. How many know that he's right? Amen? And so he, he works hard at it. All of his students graduate, uh, speak not just their, the local dialect of Creole, or language of Creole, but they also speak French and they speak English. And so I can go to his church and I can tell who's students from the church because they all come up and talk to me in English. And, uh, you know, one gentleman named Sylvester who's graduated from there comes up to me and he says, Pastor Kevin, good to see you again. He goes, how many times have you been here? And I said, well, this, this is number six. And he goes, you're Haitian now. And uh, so, you know, uh, everything, you know, is, is sharp and refined and really great, great kids. So the, the facility that is completed, the new one, this is the cafeteria inside uh, that they have there. And they feed all the students. Uh, uh, the, the school pays for their lunch. And for many of these kids, it's the only meal that they really eat all day. So they put on lunch for the students every day. This is the kitchen. Those are all propane burners that they've got going there. And uh, the ladies in there are just working hard right from the time they get to the school in the morning preparing for that lunch. And so, and man, was it hot in there, let me tell you. And they are troopers. Uh, these are some of the kids' hand-washing detail before they, they get their, uh, their breakfast. These are some of the younger children. These are up at the, uh, the kindergarten school. Now, Bennett has a dream. And... Uh, when I say Bennett has a dream, that means he has something that he wants to do and he's going to finish it. And uh, one of his dreams is that he uh, has for a long time wanted to have a place where it would be like a retreat center where young people could come and uh, where he could also, though, bring in uh, leaders from the community, politicians, people, and he could uh, have a chance to speak to them and to share with them and to show them there is a better way. And he's wanted to build this for a number of years and work on this uh, as a rec center for youth, a retreat center for different people. And so he's already went out and bought the land. So what I want to show you now, and just make sure the audio is ready on this, uh, Sheldon, is I want to show you a video that I took uh, of Bennett on that property, and he's going to share his vision with you personally here this morning. Right here on a piece of land uh, that uh, we acquired to uh, build a youth center, a youth center leader. And the reason why we want uh, to have this uh, place is to build, you know, rooms, uh, facilities that would, be, that would be very, very nice. And the idea is to bring uh, young people from uh, the most remote places uh, in Haiti and also bring them from shanty towns uh, and so on and bring them into this place where it's going to be nice and they can, you know, come here for 15 days, you know, learn about... Um, uh, money management, time management, value systems, uh, you know, read uh, the book of Proverbs, uh, learn about uh, uh, politics. What does that mean to be in politics? Is it going to steal people's money, corrupt, or is it going to serve people? So the idea is for them to come here, really, and uh, teach them about environment and, uh, and have a good time. And when they come, they will be in a very nice environment and uh, they will have people that will serve them, you know, professional servers serving them, and, and so on. And when they come, you know, being in a very nice environment, I just pray that they will take that 
experience that they have here and take it back to their community and say, man, something different can happen. Because I really believe that, uh, you know, uh, people cannot uh, do things different unless they see something different. And that's the reason why we want to build this place. Very nice, very nice. And then let them come and experience and then go back to their community. Also, we want this place to be a place where, you know, I'd like to bring senators here and uh, deputies uh, and other leaders, pastors, so that uh, when they come, we'd like to have a, a, a talk about, uh, you know, kingdom principle living, you know, how it should be, uh, you know, why this country is so that way. So uh, it's, it's going to be a multi-purpose building, but you know, we cannot do it by ourselves. We need a team that will come and say, hey, we want to partner with you to make this dream become a reality. Mm -hmm. And I believe that's going to be a great asset, you know, to help bring Haiti much further. So I just pray that more people will team up with us so that we can get this job done. So for the glory of God and the furtherance of humanity, especially the country of Haiti. God bless you and waiting to hear from you. Bye-bye. <laughs> <clears throat> Amen. Well, this is a, uh, I told the people when I was in Haiti, I said, I have lots of people come up to me and they want me to give them money. We want me to give them hope. They want me to give them help, all kinds of things. And I said, you know what? I, I, I can do that, but I only have so many, much resources. I said, so when I come to a country like Haiti or any other country, what I'm looking for are investors. I'm looking for people who have already taken a posture of investing in their country, investing in their people, and then I invest in them. And that's why I've uh, uh, partnered with Bennett uh, over the last uh, oh, decade because it's incredibly good soil. And uh, it's an investment that's paying huge dividends in the nation of Haiti. Now, I asked him how many students. He said, it's interesting. He said, the headmaster told me this morning we have 818 students now uh, in the, the schools. So, and they, go, they have a preschool right up to grade 12, 818 students. And so, uh, and already, graduates from their school have gotten involved in business. Uh, one, one of the graduates a few years ago became a doctor. They are changing the nation of Haiti because they have believed this crazy thing that, that, that things can be better than they are. And they've got a hold of that, and they're determined to see that come to pass. Amen? Praise the Lord. Uh, so, yeah. It's a bit of ringing my mic there. Sheldon, uh, you can turn it down. I don't need it quite as hot. Praise the Lord. Well, today I want to talk about taking your attitude to the next level. How many have an attitude? Come on, you can be honest. You know, you get, you get it going every once in a while. You get that thing working. Uh, you know, I can have an attitude once in a while. I admit it. Uh, sometimes it, it's there, and my wife can tell you I can have an attitude. And, uh, and I want you to know, Ryan, that there is no quick fix for the Irish temper. It just takes a, it's a lifetime commitment to, to, to learning to live with the greatest nationality in the world, which is the Irish, and, uh, and, and how to incorporate that thing and direct it. So that, that's what you've got to do. You've got to direct it toward hating the stuff that is, is wrong in the world and fixing it. That's all you've got to do. That's, that's it. Because, uh, you know, God put it in us for a reason. We just got to know how to direct it. Well, I want to talk to you about attitude and... Um, I want to start with the scripture, Philippians chapter 2. I put it up on the screen. It's a lengthy portion, but uh, I'm, I'm going to read it to you anyway. It says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. 
Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held on to, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Well, there's good advice. So that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe, as you hold out the word of life, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. This is a great passage of scripture. One of my favorites in the word. And uh, it talks about the attitude of Jesus. The attitude of Jesus. And I went through those 18 verses and I pulled out a, made a little bit of a list of the attitude of Jesus. And it's not going to the next slide. There we go. Uh, the attitude of Jesus. Here's some I pulled out. Now there's a lot of them, so they're tiny. But it says, but love, uh, tenderness and compassion, doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, be humble, Consider others better than yourselves. Don't look to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Willing to let go of your position. Willing to become nothing. Taking on the nature of a servant. Becoming obedient, even unto death. You know, the Bible says, take up your cross daily and follow me. Um, let me see. Uh, doing everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless. Holding out the word of life and being glad and rejoicing. These are just, I mean, you might find other things as you read through it. But these should be the attitude of the believer of Jesus Christ. And, uh, you know, this is the kind of attitude that gets you labeled. Uh, the word Christians actually was originated in the city of Antioch, and the believers got called Christians. Before that, they were called followers of the way, or disciples of Yeshua. But they got called Christians because they were little Christ. They were acting like little Jesus. And so, you know, you can still get called Christian in a good way today if you act like Jesus. And so... That's what we want to talk about uh, today, and I want to talk about attitude. So let me ask this question. When you picture Jesus, what do you see? When you picture Jesus, if you have a mind's image of Jesus, what does that look like? Well, this is kind of what I grew up with, you know. This was my picture of Jesus. Uh, you know, I, that's what I, when I heard the name Jesus, this is the image that popped into my head. Beautiful long brown hair. Mine was about that long when I was a teenager. I rocked it real well. And, uh, and, you know, that was it. Or maybe this one. That might be a little closer to what I picture. I'm not sure what the two fingers are supposed to, you know, peace, man. But anyway, uh, you know, that, that might be it. But, you know, to be perfectly honest with you, uh, mine probably looked even more like that. The two fingers up there with the halos a little bigger. Because I was raised Catholic, and so we had stained glass images of Jesus around, and that's kind of what he looked like, right? You ever been to those churches, and you, you see those images of Jesus, and you go, yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty much what Jesus looks like. Uh, he walked around, he had this halo. You could identify him in the crowd, because he was the guy with the big glow coming off his head, right? 
looks like a Green Bay Packers helmet. But I mean, that's, that's what he was sporting the whole time, right? And so anyway, that was pretty much what I grew up with. Now, you know, sometimes though, it was a little more realistic. It was Jesus on the cross. But this is, this is the version of Jesus on the cross I grew up with. This perfect, calm, serene, uh, with one nice little line where they pierced his side and then his, his hands and feet. I mean, that was pretty much it. That was the, the image of Jesus. He still was sporting the halo even when he was on the cross. Not really a very accurate picture of Jesus. Probably Jesus on the cross looked more like this. And, uh, you know, this is what he, look, if you read the description of what he suffered through and the, the, how he was whipped, and if you do the research on what that whipping and scourging looked like and how, how the, the, the whip was designed to rip literally pieces and chunks of flesh from the body, this is probably a much more accurate picture of what Jesus looked like on the cross. And this is certainly one of the images we need to have of Jesus in our heart. We need to have an image of a suffering Savior. And we should never trivialize the sacrifice of Jesus by forgetting the price that he paid on our behalf. But then again, we should never, and catch this this morning, we should never trivialize the sacrifice or the work of Christ by always and only remembering the cross and not the life that he died to provide. See, sometimes we get so fixated on the cross and the suffering, we forget that he suffered so that I might live. And we do... A huge disservice to the cross when we think only that way. John 10.10 says, The thief cometh not but to steal and to kill and destroy. But I have come, I have come, I have come, that you might have life and that they might have it, what? More abundantly. Jesus died so that I could live an abundant life. Jesus died so I could live an abundant life. Say that with me. Jesus died so I could live an abundant life. That's why he died. He died so I could live an abundant life. Now, this next statement might offend some people, but... Oh, sorry. Did I not put it up there? Oh, let me go on with it. Yeah, sorry. Let me get to this first. This is a picture that, John, uh, that Mark Pierce had framed in his house. Do you guys remember this picture? He had this picture of Jesus. And you know what? This is more how I picture Jesus now. When I, when I have an image of Jesus in my head, this is Jesus. This is, or maybe this one. I like this one, too. This is Jesus. Isn't that a good picture? I think Jesus had a great sense of humor. I think Jesus' uh, disciples loved to be around him. He was attractive, you know, uh, that, that, that people wanted to be around him because when they were around him, they felt hope. When they were around him, they felt joy. When they were around him, their needs were met. When they were around him, they, they were fulfilled. When they were around him, there was peace. When they were around him, they were, they were in the midst of, of something great, and they wanted to be in the presence of greatness. Are you hearing me this morning? And so when I picture Jesus, these are, these are the images I have of Jesus. Gone are my old Catholic images of Jesus. And, uh, and even though I don't trivialize the suffering of Jesus, I, I focus on what Jesus died to provide. That's why that, the whole idea of having to be masochistic, to go around and abuse your body and, and torture yourself so that you can share in the sufferings of Jesus is a distorted understanding of what that means when we share in the fellowship of his sufferings. How do I share in the fellowship of his sufferings? I share in it every time I experience life through his suffering. Every time I recognize what Jesus did on my behalf, every time I live my life to the full, recognizing what Jesus did on my behalf, now I'm sharing in the fellowship of his suffering. Are you hearing me? This is what we need to, to get into our heads. And uh, I think, you know, 
Cy Robertson might be one of the best theologians around. If you don't know who that is, uh, you've never watched Duck Dynasty. But Uncle Cy is the one that you're never quite sure if he's there. Do you know what I mean? And, uh, but I, I found this one. Jesus makes me happy, happy, happy. Uh, Cy's always walking around saying, happy, happy, happy. So is uh, Phil. Happy, happy, happy. Jesus makes me happy, happy, happy. And, you know, we have to have an understanding and a theology that embraces that work of Jesus Christ to do something in me. Can I be honest with you? The world does not find you attractive if you walk around depressed all the time. You know, you're not helping the cause. Hello? You're not helping. You're not helping. Okay? And I've met lots of people that aren't helping. I'm out there doing my best. I'm working hard at it. And, you know, it especially bothers me, you know, Marie, when we go to Starbucks and you got somebody in the, we talked about this last Christmas. They're in the lineup and they feel it's their Christian duty to tell you how terrible the cup is this year. Right? Right? They're not helping. You know, look at the cup. It's, it's not even red. It's green. Real conversation, right? It's green. Everybody knows Christmas cups should be red. Yeah, you're right. Jesus died so you could have a red cup. That was the whole focus of, of Christmas. The message is a red cup. And, you know, these people, you know, think that they're, they're, they're helping us here. And they're not. You're not helping. Please, shut up. <laughs> Who cares if it's red or green or whatever? You know, it don't matter to me. I just like the coffee. You know what I'm saying? I just give me my Carol Macchiato. You can throw it in whatever you want. It doesn't matter to me. You know, don't get all up in arms over stuff that doesn't matter. Honestly, goodness gracious. Oh, they're trying to take Jesus out of Christmas because the cup is green. Really? Is that all you got? That's it right there? Help me, Lord. So the season's coming. Don't be one of those people this year. I don't know what the cup's going to look like. Don't care. Uh, but don't be one of those people. Don't be one of those people that, you know, when someone says happy holidays to you, feels that you need to give them a lecture of why it should be Merry Christmas. Just say Merry Christmas back. Can you do that? That's what I do. Someone says happy holidays to me, I say Merry Christmas. And then I grin. My grin is so big you can't wipe it off my face. Right? That's what you do. That's how you win. All right? I'm just, just saying. This is all for free this morning. Um, but anyway. So, uh, do I have this? Oh, yeah, yes, I do. Okay. When I lose sleep, can you just really pay attention? If you're going to take a picture of any slide this morning, get this one. When I lose sight of the truth that Jesus died that I could have life, abundant life, and I live a life far below what he died to provide, I am belittling, perhaps even slandering, the work of Christ. Did you catch that? When I lose sight of the truth that Jesus died that I could have life, abundant life, and I live a life far below what he died to provide, I am belittling, perhaps even slandering the work of Christ. I could just stop right there. But I, I, are you hearing me this morning? I have a responsibility to live my life in such a way that the world sees me and knows there's something different about me. I mean, yeah, I have bad days, but I don't wear them on my shirt sleeve. Are you hearing? I, I roll my sleeves up so they look nice anyway. You know what I'm saying? Just check out this baby. My, my son this morning told me my, my shirt looked like someone barfed up Skittles on it. I'm, I'm not sure what that means, but uh, I had other people say, man, that is really good. I had some people tell me that 
uh, I look like I'm ready to own my own restaurant in the Caribbean. Uh, you know, I've had lots of different comments about my shirt this morning, but I want you to know this is a good shirt. And I even had somebody say it looked very festive, very Christmassy. I'm not really sure, but, but yeah, all of them. Uh, actually, yeah, someone told me I have all the, I have all the, 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 the you know, seasons, all of the uh, uh, vacations and, and, and special times of the year all wrapped up in one. But, uh, you know, the bottom line is, you know, we have a responsibility to act in a way that attracts people to Christ. Now, I'm going to so focus in on one aspect of this this morning because it's the most important one. And that's being happy. Happy, happy, happy. And I want you to know that happiness is a serious problem. You may never have heard this before, but it's sound counsel nevertheless. It is a serious problem. Now, there's a guy named Dennis Prager. How many have ever heard of him? He's a conservative commentary guy, writes books and stuff. He's a Jewish fella. Um, and he wrote a book in 1998 that I found. I don't even know how I found this book, but anyway, I got it. It's called Happiness is a Serious Problem, a Human Nature Repair Manual. That's what the book was. And uh, I was intrigued as soon as I picked the book up. And uh, he begins by noting that while cultures vary profoundly, the human desire for happiness is nearly universal, as are the many obstacles. And it was the title of his first chapter that really hooked me, and I was in. And he said, happiness is a moral obligation. Happiness is a moral obligation. And he said, first of all, we owe it to our spouse, our fellow workers, our children, our friends, indeed to everyone who's part of our lives to be as happy as we can be. We have a moral obligation to that. Secondly, he said, people are more, act more decently when they're happy. Have you ever noticed that when you're in a good mood, you'll be nicer to people than when you're in a bad mood, right? If you're in a bad mood, you're just not going to be nice to people. You're going to be nasty. So be in a good mood. And then you can be nice to people. It's as simple as that, right? And then finally he said, and this is the most important part of the whole chapter, was unhappy people of faith reflect, reflect poorly on their religion and on their creator. In other words, let me put that in common vernacular. Miserable pricks are bad advertising. Is that... Is that is that on, does everybody get that now? Do you understand what that means? Can you read clarity? Can you, uh, clarity? Uh, miserable pricks, Barry, are bad advertising for the gospel. Do you understand that? Now, don't look oh so shocked at me. You've used that word before yourself. The reality is, uh, what was the name of that book, Barry, you, you said you were going to write? What's it, what's it going to be called? I was never going to write it. <laughs> Some, a prick. Yeah, there you go. See, and <laughs> I think you should write that book. I, I'd buy a copy. You know what I'm saying? Uh, am I being clear enough for everybody this morning? All right? And, and I think that's what he's trying to say. You know, and my dad used to say, there was an old proverb he used all the time, and he told me this all the time. He said, if you don't have something, then don't say, hello. Hello. Right there in plain sight. My dad preaching at me all the time, it finally paid off. If you haven't got something good to say, then shut up is what he was saying, right? Zip it. Park it. You know? Stay home, for goodness sakes. If you're going to go out into the world and you're going to be miserable, then stay home. Live like a hermit. Do the world a favor. Stay home. <laughs> the letters are going to come this week, let me tell you. 
Dennis tells this story in his book. He said, he says, after one of my many talks on happiness, a woman in the audience stood up and said, I only wish my husband had come to this talk. He'd chosen to attend one in business instead. She explained that he was the unhappy one in their relationship and that much as she loved him, it was not easy being married to an unhappy person. Dennis continued, this woman enabled me to put into words what I had been searching for, altruistic, in addition to the obvious personal reasons to take happiness seriously. I told the woman in the audience and the audience that she was right. Her husband should have attended the talk because he had a moral obligation to his daily partner in life to be as happy as he could be. To be as happy as he could be. Now, this doesn't mean we walk around faking it all the time. It, it means that we instead engage in the work of actually changing our attitude. You don't have to fake it, but what you've got to do is you've got to work at it. You've got to work at it. You've got to actually change your attitude. See, here's the thing. When we as a people of faith walk around, we're miserable, and, uh, you know, people see us, they come to one of two conclusions. They think that either that we're not practicing our faith correctly or that we are practicing it correctly and our faith doesn't actually work. And usually they conclude the last one because they don't want to personally assume that you aren't doing your job right. They don't want to come down on you, so they just assume that faith doesn't work. If they see you're miserable, then they just assume to themselves, well, then this whole Christianity thing just doesn't work. It doesn't work. It's a sham. It doesn't, it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. Unhappy, let alone angry religious people, provide more persuasive arguments for atheism and secularism than all the arguments of atheists. They can write all their books, they can come out with all their stuff, and how many people actually go and read Richard Dawkins' books? You know what I mean? Uh, or Christopher Hitchens, or whatever. You know, it's a small percentage of the population. Most people don't want to hear these guys wax on and on about why they're atheists and how bad Christians and people of faith are. For the large, most part, most people don't even know who those people are. What they do know is the Christians who act like idiots. And, and they say to themselves, I don't want to be that. And they blame it on our faith. When it's not, our, our faith is not the problem. Jesus is not the problem. Right? The, the Christian message is not the problem. It's the people who fail to engage in the process of being happier, of actually being someone filled with the joy of the Lord. That's the problem. That's the problem. So, what am I saying? I'm saying happiness is a choice. It's your choice. You get to choose whether you're going to be happy or not. It takes no courage or no real effort at all to be unhappy. Anybody can be unhappy. You can, you can wake up tomorrow and be unhappy. You can just be miserable all day. And it doesn't take any work at all. I mean, you know what I'm it takes no effort. I mean, you can just, you just roll out of bed and just... All day long, and you don't even have to work at that. You can just... It's there. <laughs> Dennis Prager says this he says to this day when I am unhappy I remind myself that I'm taking the easy way out that happiness is a battle to be waged and not a feeling to be awaited <laughs> happiness is a battle to be waged and not a feeling to be awaited oh I'm just waiting until I'm happy again I'm just going to sit right here and be miserable until someone makes me happy again you may be waiting a long time because happiness is the result of your labor for it, your work for it. You know, Paul put it this way. He said, 
you know, with strive to be at rest. Strive to be in that place of peace. Strive to be in that place of happiness. That's the only thing we have to work for. We don't have to work for our salvation. We don't have to work for eternal life. We don't have to work for any of those things. All we have to work for is to stay in that place of rest, that place of peace, that place of happiness. That's what we have to fight for. What most people lack is the awareness that what will make them happy demands a great deal of thought. You actually have to think about this. You have to ask yourself, what will, will this really make me happy? Hello? That's why I picked steak, because steak really does make me happy. I give a great deal of thought to it, don't I, Barry? A great deal of thought. Do I want the ribeye or do I want the New Yorker? Because I really want to be happy here, so I, I give a great deal of thought to it. I really do. Um, and, and you have to understand there's a self-discipline to overcome the natural inclination to do what is most pleasurable at the moment rather than what is most happy-inducing. Ask anybody who's had an affair about this and they can tell you what I'm talking about. For that fleeting moment, they went after that thing that they, that was, they thought was going to be great because it was pleasurable but didn't think about the long-term consequences of what this will impact this will have on their happiness and on the happiness of those that they say they love. And we need the wisdom to consistently answer the question, will this make me happier or unhappier? We have to ask ourselves that question. So, try to be happy unless something happens that makes you unhappy, rather than unhappy unless something makes you happy. Is that just, that, that's just pretty simple. Can, can you get that? This isn't rocket science this morning, okay? Sound advice right here. Try to be happy unless something happens that makes you unhappy, right? Instead of being unhappy unless something makes you happy. So go through your life just saying, I'm, I'm a happy guy. I'm just a happy guy. I have people say to me, are you always in a good mood? I say, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. yeah, sure, things can make me miserable. You know, the lights I was putting up yesterday, just, you know, gnawing away at my sanctification. You know, but then I watched GSP win last night, and it was back. You know what I mean? Uh, but, but the reality is, I, 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 I follow this in my life. I try to be happy. And uh, I, I just work at it on a regular daily basis. Unless something comes to make you unhappy, then you've got to deal with the thing. But rather than being unhappy and, and somebody's got to do something, I've got to win a lottery, I've got to have a, something given to me, I've got to have some kind of ex experience to make me happy. If you go through life waiting on an experience to make you happy, you're going to be miserable most of the time. All right. Help me, Lord. All right. Why are we unhappy so much? Because it's our sinful nature to be unhappy. Hello? Why? Because we're, it's the completely satisfied thing. You know, completely satisfied. You're not completely satisfied, you know, then give us a call. If you're not completely satisfied with your income, well, then you have a right to be miserable. If you're not, and this is where advertising works on this all the time, if you're not completely satisfied with your spouse, then give Ashley Madison a call. If you're not completely satisfied with your children, then give the children's aid a call. You know what I'm saying? If you're not completely satisfied with your parents, I don't know who you call, Ghostbusters. If you're not completely satisfied with your car, then Need a Car can help you. you know? And Need a Car don't care about your bad credit. So you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, we, we market to the unhappiness in our nature, the desire to always want something you know, you know, better all the time. Now, you're probably sitting there thinking to yourself, wait a minute, didn't you last week Tell us that, that we should be dissatisfied with things, that there's got to be a better way. Yeah, I did tell you that. I did talk about that. But that's called divine dissatisfaction. 
There is a divine dissatisfaction in the human nature where we need to be dissatisfied with things that are not the way God wants them to be. That divine dissatisfaction propels us to always be doing things better. And that's a good thing. That kind of dissatisfaction is good, and you need to have that operating in your life. But then there's sinful dissatisfaction, and that is dissatisfaction over things that are unimportant. Unimportant. Everybody say unimportant. Um, at Starbucks, Mickey, I get a kick out of him. And, and one day, th- this lady went through the drive-thru and she was complaining because the foam was not done right on her drink, right? And I don't know how he hasn't gotten fired, honestly. I mean, you're, you're a gracious woman. But uh, uh, Mickey, Mickey just looked at her and he said, and he said uh, you know, he said, ma'am, he said, you're right. He said, I spent, uh, you know, three years in Calcutta uh, at Mother Teresa's Mission of Mercy. He said, but you've got real problems. Let me see if I can fix that. I was like, yes! The, all the things you wish you could say to people all the time but never really have the nerve to do it doesn't seem to stop him. But I'm telling you, uh, he nailed it right there. You're, you're upset about your foam? Hello? Dissatisfaction over the unimportant. That is sinful dissatisfaction. Or dissatisfaction over the important things but things you can't change. That also is sinful dissatisfaction. I believe they sum it up at, at, at CR like this. God, grant me the serenity to accept the figs, <laughs> the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know what? The difference. Hello. Hello. Divine dissatisfaction and sinful dissatisfaction in one simple prayer. Praise the Lord. Well, whew, I'm going to finish with this. How does this dissatisfaction come into our life, this sinful dissatisfaction? It comes by comparing yourself to other people. The problem is we compare ourselves to those we think are happier than we are. You see, if you compared yourself to everybody else, to the rest of the world, you'd probably be in pretty good shape. You'd probably go through life blissfully grinning from ear to ear if you compared yourself to the rest of the world. Because you live as the wealthiest 5% of the population in the world. You have every opportunity in North America and and, 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 you know, you, you just have, you should be grinning all day. It should be a perpetual grin on your face. And so the reality is, you know, we, we should be happy. Comparison should make us happy. But it doesn't because we compare ourselves to the other 3 or 4%. We compare ourselves to the ones that have more than us, a nicer car, a newer home, uh, a better job, uh, whatever. We compare ourselves to those that we think are enjoying life more than us. We compare ourselves to people in Hollywood, people that make millions of dollars for a picture, people who are athletes, who are pros, and all that kind of stuff. And then we're shocked when we get their memoirs at the end of their career, and we find out that they actually had a really miserable life. Because those things don't actually make you happy. You get to choose to be happy. They don't make you happy. Happiness is a choice. And those people are just as miserable as you, and they're comparing themselves to other people, and it's a vicious cycle of, oh my goodness, where does it end? Happiness is a choice and the fruit of determined labor to remain that way. Rita Mae Brown said, uh, a life of reaction is a life of slavery, intellectually and spiritually. One must fight to have a life of action, not reaction. Fight to be a person who's happy, not somebody who reacts and is unhappy. Am I making any sense to anybody here this morning? All right, let me conclude with this. Your attitude is your choice. Are you hearing me? Well, you don't understand the pressures I'm under. Don't care. You still get to choose how you're going to respond to them. It's not that I don't care. I mean, I can have compassion for them. You understand what I mean. I, I mean, it's not an excuse is what I mean. 
It's not an excuse. Chuck Swindle put it this way. He said, I believe the single most significant decision I can make on a day-to-day basis is my choice of attitude. Attitude keeps me going or cripples my progress. It alone fuels my fire or assaults my hope. When my attitude is right, there's no barrier too high, no valley too deep, no dream too extreme, no challenge too great for me. When my attitude is right. Thomas Jefferson said, nothing can stop the man with the right mental attitude from achieving his goal. Nothing on earth can help the man with the wrong mental attitude. Woo, man, oh man. And good old Charles Dickens. Reflect upon your present blessings of which every man has many, not on your past misfortunes of which all men have some. You get to choose. Every day, Jesus says, I put before you life and death. Now choose life and live. Choose life and live. Why am I preaching this message? Because we're coming into the easiest season to witness that there is, the Christmas season. I mean, the world is embracing our holiday. They're embracing our time of celebration. Yeah, they've got it all wrong. It's not about a dude in a red suit, and it's not about, you know, trees and Otanabom, and it's not about the, that, the exchange of presents per se. Or anything. It's not about all that. I get that. I still love all that stuff, but it's not about that. We know what it's really about. But many people don't. We live in a postmodern world. Most people don't have a clue what it's about. And you get to tell them. But you cannot tell them. Right after you've complained about the traffic, and you've complained about the lineups, and you've complained about you know, the headache you woke up with this morning, and the eggnog the night before, and how expensive turkey is, and, and how you won't have enough money to, to buy your kids a present, and blah, 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 They just shut you off. Instead, love and joy unto you and to you. Yeah, something. Uh, And God bless you. Whatever. Uh, (laughs) For some reason, I thought I had that one in my head, but it ain't there. (laughs) Uh, Shoot. I'm going to end with this... uh, this brief little story here. Viennese psychiatrist Viktor Frankl survived Auschwitz. And he later summarized his horrific experience with his now famous statement, man's search for meaning is the primary motivation in his life. And he observed that prisoners who were most likely to survive were those who refused to abandon hope, who held on to a larger meaning in their suffering. Frankl's pregnant wife, his brother, and his parents were all murdered by the Nazis. How would he respond to such unspeakable injustice? The decision would be his. And this is what he said. He said, everything can be taken from a man but one thing. The last of his human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. To choose one's own way. To choose. You get to choose. Your attitude today is not determined by your circumstances, by your fortunes, or your coworkers, or by your spouse, or by your children. Your attitude today is the result of the work of one person only. You. 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 I can't tell you how many couples I counsel that come into my office, and their marriage is in disarray. And I feel like saying to them, you know, if you would only choose to get up tomorrow morning and be happy with each other, just make the choice. We could rewrite your history. We could rewrite your marriage if you just decide to be happy. 
but you don't understand what she's like. And I, and I hear, you know, all of it goes on and on. And honestly, it starts to sound like, it, yeah, Charlie Brown's school teacher. Uh, you know, and I'm not going to sit down and compare notes with him and say all the challenges I've had, and, you know, and we've overcome them, so, so can you. I'm not going to do that because they're not going to hear it anyway. They're so focused on their misery that they can't see the hope there is if they would choose life and live. Every married couple that I know that's happy has had to choose it. There have been lots of things that have happened that could have stolen their joy, stolen the, 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 the happiness in that relationship, but they choose each other and they choose every day to be happy. And you could be, choose to be miserable because I'm 20 minutes longer than I said I was going to be this morning. But I'll, I'll just blame it on Sue and on Ryan, who both did excellent jobs and stole my time. And, uh, and I'll be comfortable with that. Uh, but, but you get to leave here and choose whether it's going to make you miserable or not. You get to go to Swiss Chalet and complain because the preacher was long. Or you get to go to Swiss Chalet and ha- say, man, that guy was so right and leave a 20% tip. Every day you get to choose. So this Christmas, please, I implore you, I implore you. God is holding up before you today life and death. Choose life. Please, please choose life and live. Choose life in your marriage. Choose life in your speech to one another. Choose life in the way you treat one another. Choose life with your children. Choose life at work. Choose life, uh, you know, at school. Choose life everywhere you go. Choose life. Speak life. Declare life. Live life. Enjoy life. Be filled with life. Don't choose death. Choose life and live. In other words, choose life, he was saying, and in the Hebrew it says, and flourish. Choose life and flourish. Would you be that person, please? Please, please, when we choose that, when we choose that, we leave a mark in the world that that Satan cannot erase. He cannot erase it when we choose life. Now, that doesn't mean that, that we roll over and we just accept everything that happens. No, we're always fighting for a better world and a better life and a better government and a better, uh, you know, everything. That's not my point. My point is in the process, we do it by speaking life, not by speaking hate. Hello, not by being that guy or that woman. Speak life. Speak life. And lastly, let me say this. Can you hold one another accountable to it, please? Not in a miserable way. Don't be that guy again. Don't be, oh, man, you didn't handle that very well. You know, but if you see somebody in the body of Christ and they're being grouchy in the store and being nasty to somebody, afterwards you say, are you okay today? I just noticed you didn't seem to be yourself there. You're just, man. And even if they were being themselves and they're miserable all the time, just lie a little bit, all right? And, and just uh, so, so that you can open them up a little bit to what your counsel is. And then, and then just see if you can help them to speak life. Because that's what we need to do. The Bible says to, to spur one another on toward good works, right? To encourage one another, to build one another up in our faith. All right, let's stand together this morning. I, I could talk about this for a month. And, uh, and I realize... Here's the reality I've come to understand. You either get it or I need to hit you with a sledgehammer. They're, they're the, the two. That's the reality I've got for you this morning. And, and uh, if you need the sledgehammer, I, I've, I've got one at home. I, you know, 
I can work that into my routine this week. I might be able to help you out. But it's so much easier if you just let Holy Spirit do it. Uh, Gary used to talk about a holy two-by-four. And let God use his two-by-four, because if I use my sledgehammer, it's going to be painful. But God, if, he can just apl- if you can just let him, just let him crack you open. Let him speak. Let, let, let him in. And this Christmas season, I mean, man, Pastor, you're talking about Christmas already. No, no, I'm really not. I'm talking about your attitude. But, but it really helps if you got the right one this time of year. All right? Don't use it as a chance to preach to people and, and tell them how wrong it is to have a Christmas tree or any other nonsense. Come on. No. Spread joy, love, peace, grace, mercy, goodwill toward all men. Be that person. Be that person this year. You can do it. You can be that person. And I realize Aunt you know, Zelda coming over for Christmas is stressful. And, and I realize that all those things can, can weigh on you. But can you see past it and say, Jesus, help me with my attitude so that I continue to speak life everywhere I go? Can we do that this morning? Would you just lift your hands with me to Jesus this morning? And would you just repeat after me, Jesus, I need your help. My natural attitude, my sinful nature is to be dissatisfied and to focus on the negative. But with your help, this year, this Christmas, I will speak life. Every chance, every place, every opportunity I have. I will speak life. I will speak hope. I will speak joy. I will declare goodness in the land of the living. And I ask you today to equip every one of us to be your disciples, speaking life wherever we go, in Jesus' name. Amen. Hallelujah. Bless the Lord. All right, it's, it's really late, but you still got lots of time to get lunch. And, uh, you know, and the good news is, you know, I won't be here the next two weeks, so you won't have to worry about me going long. You just have to worry about Barry or Mark going long. But <laughs> what's that? Oh, yeah. Well, I knew that, but it's still, but it's still 5 to 12, not 5 to 1. I, I, bless you and have an awesome week. Thank you for being part of it today. And we, we'll see you, the rest of you next Sunday.